I love this series that we just jumped into. Um, we just came out of a series where we were talking about different heroes in the scriptures. And I love telling the story of, uh, of men and women in the scriptures that God used to, to change history and culture and bring impact. And we got to tell many of those stories and it was powerful and life-changing. And now we shift gears and we're gonna spend time in one particular letter. And uh, it's the letter of 2 Timothy. And we chose this one. It's the last letter that Paul writes before he dies. And it's a letter that he writes to uh, his young ap apprentice in the Lord, someone who he calls a son in the Lord, uh, Timothy. And, uh, and he's writing this letter for a very specific pur purpose. He's writing it to Timothy personally, but he also knows it's going to be read in the churches. And he wants them to know that after he's gone, they need to be equipped to carry out and live this life that they have been living uh, together and moving forward. And so he writes this letter and, and the kind of the theme is he wants to equip them. And so this series, we've called it uh, Equipped. And last week, um, I joked around about how important it is to have the right equipment and knowing how to use that. And um, many people teased me afterwards as I talked about how I'm incapable, 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 incapable of camping. Uh, I didn't camp when I was growing up. I don't know how that, any of that equipment works. And I, I really respect people who do. And I like watching uh, uh, shows where people survive off the land. I just don't have any of the skills for that. And, uh, and being equipped makes a huge difference. When you're trying to do something, and as a matter of fact, this past week, um, one of my rooted groups was doing their service project, and, uh, and we were serving a, a family in, in the church, and one of the things we were doing, we were building a fence, and I haven't built a fence before that was straight. I've helped on a fence, and it didn't work out so well. And so I figured we're doing a technical job that my job will probably just be management because I don't have this skill set, except someone brought a tool that I've never played with before, a nail gun and an air compressor. And they said, you can just shoot things. I'm like, sign me up. And so for a, a length of time, I sat there and with the nail, I'm thump, 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 thump. And I was shooting things. And, and, and here's the thing, there's a fence now, and I think it's beautiful. It's straighter than anything I've ever built before. And it's put together and it was able to be done in one kind of fell swoop. Why? Because we had the right equipment. We were equipped, we had the right tool for the job and we knew how to use that tool. And I've built fences before without that equipment and it hasn't turned out so well. And here's the thing in our lives, when we're not equipped, when we don't know what we're doing, we make a mess of things or we make things more difficult and it becomes hard and we get frustrated when we're not equipped for the job. And the same thing happens in our walk with Jesus. If we're not equipped and we don't have the tools, sometimes we try to build a fence and it's a hot mess. And we're like, it kind of looks like a fence, but it was a lot of my work and no tools. And so Paul's writing to this church that's got to exist after he's gone, that he kind of sparked and was kind of pastoring from afar and mentoring. And he writes to the pastor of this church, a letter that's going to be read to this church. And he's like, hey, you're going to need some of these tools to keep your fence in order, to look like the thing that you say that you want to be and to design and to, and to make. And, and so last week we ended our conversation, first, uh, 2 Timothy verse 1. You can jump ahead of me because we're going to get to verse 8. But we ended the conversation talking about courage and that we've received a spirit of power. And we haven't received a spirit of timidity. And, and, uh, and we pressed into kind of this uncomfortable area in, in the book of Revelation where it lists out these things that, that, uh, that are going to be characteristics of people who we don't see in heaven. And the reality is there's no cowards in heaven. According to the scripture, 
There's no cowards in heaven, and we don't talk about that nearly enough, about how important courage is and having a spirit of power and not allowing a a spirit of intimidation, we broke that word down, to allow us to be intimidated and moved away from the things that we hold on to and profess to be true as followers of Jesus. And there's just no cowards in heaven. And so Paul kind of ends that that thought and and takes that thought of you have a, a spirit of power. And the next thing he talks about is not being ashamed. And so this week, we're gonna talk about how do we equip this tool of being shameless and not being ashamed? And he spoke specifically about the, the being ashamed of the gospel and who God is. And I got to tell you, I'm here today because someone was not ashamed of their story and invited me, a punk kid, capital P, punk, wannabe gangster, Bay Area, 95 degrees, parka wearing, thought he was cool, big curl, Superman curl in his hair, trying to be tough and raw, trying to be that guy and totally a poser. But someone had the courage to invite me to church. And I got to be honest with you, her church wasn't cool at all. So she invited me, her name was Elaine, and it was, I don't know, an evening. She was a neighborhood uh, like three, three houses down, girl, we were standing, we we're outside, we we're talking with some of the neighborhood kids. And she goes, you know what, Mike, you should come with me to my church one of these times. And I laughed and I said, why would I do that? Churches are lame. The only picture I had of church, see, when I was growing up, I went to church, but we went to a Spanish speaking church and I didn't speak Spanish very well, except the swear words. And they didn't use those words in church. So I didn't know what anyone was saying when I went to church. I never had a problem with speaking in tongues as I began to know the Holy Spirit because church was always in a foreign language. And so I would go and church for me was just a place where if I behaved, we ate chicken nuggets. And if I didn't, we ate hot dogs. Not that I'm against hot dogs, but that was all I knew about church. Be good, be quiet, don't make any noise, and we'll go to McDonald's. That was church for me. And so I thought church was lame. The other thing I knew about church is at camps or things like that or VBSs, I thought that's that place where I hear that kids like eat goldfish, like live goldfish, right? I'm like, those guys are nerds. And so she invites me and I laugh and I'm like, no way. I'm not interested in this. And she says, okay. And I go to, at the end of the night leave and she goes, you know, you really should come with me to church only this time my mom hears. And she's like, what? She goes, I, I just tell him, I, I go to church and it's really close and he can come on Wednesday nights. And she's like, there's a place he can be on Wednesday nights that's not running around the neighborhood. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. She goes, he'll be there. She's Puerto Rican and so she won. And, uh, and so she tells me, she goes, listen, you're gonna go. Uh, and I was like, I'm not gonna go. And she's like, you're gonna go three times. And if you hate it, then I won't make you go after that. But you're going three times. And I was like, fine, because I didn't want to fight her. I couldn't take her yet. And uh, so I decided I was going to go, and I went, and all of my worst fears were confirmed. There was a guy, and he sat on a stool, and he played a left-handed Yamaha guitar, and he knew three chords in one strum pattern, and he could not sing in tune. And he did three songs, and I don't know if they were different songs or the same song, but it was just down, down, up, up, down, up. And to my horror, in the middle of one of the songs, everyone in the room was supposed to walk in faith and victory and then walk in faith. And my junior high self said, this is the least cool thing I've ever been at in my life. Why does anyone do this? 
I wanted nothing to do with it. I was, I was not interested at all. And, and, uh, and so I left and I went home and my mom went, how did it go? And I was like, it was embarrassing and I don't know what they're doing and they're crazy. And she's like, well, then you don't have to go if you don't want to go. And he goes, oh, no, I'll go back again. Why did I do that? I don't know, except for looking back, except for that God was calling to me and there was something there that was alive and that was life, but it wasn't cool and I didn't know anything about it. And I, I went again and the, to my horror, they did that song thing again. And I thought, man, maybe that was just like a one-off and he was a guest, but he was actually the lead guy. And uh, there were a couple good looking girls and that was the saving grace. And besides that, we also played basketball and stuff and I was competitive, so it was fun. And I would go and play basketball and try to ditch. And then they were like, no, nah, you gotta come. And I was like, oh, so I would go and I would sit through this message and and the guy would talk and he wasn't very good at all and he's one of my best friends in the world now so I don't mind saying that he just wasn't he wasn't any good at this at all but he would just tell stories about his life and from the bible and and I would hear them and I go ah oh, it's interesting but I I don't know why anybody would do this because it's just not cool and I was still drawn and I would still go and then to my horror they said we're gonna go to camp you should come and I thought this is when we eat the goldfish I'm finally out and so I told my mom, there's no way I'm going. And she's like, you should just go. And I was like, okay, I'll go. So I show up. And because I was very concerned about super, being super cool, I brought my Bible that my, someone in the family had given me at one point. It was a yellow children's Bible with a picture of Jesus holding a lamb on the front of it. And because I was really concerned about being cool, I was lugging that Bible around. And I went to camp. It was the only Bible I'd ever really seen, uh, except for the ones under the chairs, which turned out to be hymnals. But... Uh, <laughs> Millennials, uh, there used to be books under chairs that had the songs that we would sing in them because we didn't have technology to put the words on the screen. And, uh, and they were called hymnals. And that, now you can find them at thrift stores. They hold up leaky tables that are off-centered. But, uh, but uh, I went to camp and I'm listening to this message and this pastor that's speaking is talking about the love of God like a father's love. And I'd never heard that before. My father wasn't around and my stepdad was a mean alcoholic and just a caholic in general, addicted to many different things. And uh, I didn't know anything about a father's love. And so I heard that and I was very defensive. And I thought, there, if that exists, I've been ripped off. And this story began to unfold and this pastor spoke out of John chapter three and said, uh, what an amazing love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. And he started talking about how there was an intent behind every life and that God designed us and wanted us and I didn't think I was anything but an accident. And I began to listen to this story about God and I thought there's something there that's powerful but I don't know what that means. And so because I was the kid that didn't go where you were supposed to go, I was every youth pastor's nightmare, I ditched the next service and I just hung out in the room and I opened my children's Bible and I said, all right, God, if you're real, tell me your, show me that you're real. And I flipped open my Bible and I put my finger down and I said, talk to me if this is how you talk, right? Because it was very spiritual to do that, I thought. And so I put my finger down and I, I'm, I'm at the start of a chapter in a book called First Corinthians and it's chapter 13. And I'm looking and my finger's at verse four and it says, love is patient, love is kind. It doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud, it isn't rude, it isn't self-seeking, it's not easily angered. It doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And I read that and I had never seen love like that. Love was always something you leveraged to get something you needed or wanted. 
And I thought, that can't be real. I've never heard of a love like that. And so I read it again, and I started to get emotional. I read it again, and I read it again, and I read it again, and I read it again. And it was like the Holy Spirit just began to talk to me and said, this is what you've been missing, and this is what I'm offering to you. And I thought, that's really weird. Someone's going to see me in here, and now I'm the weird kid who's not cool. So I put the Bible away, and I started walking around. Of course, I'm supposed to be in service right now, so the place is empty, and nobody knows where I'm at. And I find this little, uh, little pond, and what's hilarious is there's goldfish in there. And I'm like, oh. Oh, this is the hook, right? Eventually we're going to be eating these goldfish and never happened. But I stopped at the goldfish pond and it was like the Holy Spirit caught and checked my heart. And, and, and God has a sense of humor because look at me. And, uh, and I said, all right, God, if you're real, I'm going to give you one shot. But if you let me down even a little, I'm out. And I trusted God for salvation right in front of this little pond and, and uh, with these little goldfish in it. And now I've had the opportunity to tell that story literally hundreds of times uh, in front of thousands of teenagers as a youth pastor, in front of friends and neighbors, and in front of all of you. And it's my story, and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm I courageously believe that God can use it to change lives. As a matter of fact, this summer I'm actually preaching at that camp. And I'll be preaching to teenagers at the play. I've never preached there before. And so I'll be back in Camp Coyonia in Northern California out by uh, 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 Santa Cruz, which is awesome. And uh, I'll be down there telling people the story about how I met Jesus. And I was afraid I was going to be forced to eat goldfish. And I really hope they end up eating goldfish because that'll be awesome. But... I'm so grateful that Elaine had the courage to tell me her story and bring me to this place that I thought was embarrassing that took me to this place where I met Jesus. And now I tell that story and Paul is encouraging us to not be ashamed of our story. As a matter of fact, he starts the conversation in Romans. In Romans 1.16, you've maybe heard this verse. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes I'm not ashamed that my life has been changed because I trusted Jesus. I'm not ashamed to tell you that story no matter what you think of me because of that. I'm not embarrassed by that. I'm not ashamed of my story. Paul says, don't be ashamed to tell the story of the gospel of what Jesus has done for you personally, what he's done for all of us. And it feels like in, in my adult life, we're in the kind of the first time that I've, I've ever felt this pressure of that, that the world just wants us to keep our mouth shut. That if we tell our story, somehow we're divisive or judgmental. Somehow we're, we're uh, invading somebody else's space and that we should not be telling our story. And we've got to recall our story and somehow live our story, but not tell our story because we shouldn't be uh, uh, drawing divisive and division in, in, in our lives. And I got to tell you, the only way I know how to respond when someone tells me I can't tell that story is uh, it's a little immature, but I was a teenager when I got saved and I just say, you know what? Sorry, not sorry. I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. Hashtag no shame. And the scripture tells us time and time again not to be ashamed of our story, not to be ashamed of the gospel, not to be ashamed of what God's done for us, not to let that creep into our vernacular, not to shrink away from having the courage to tell others what God has done in our lives. And yet we live in a culture and we think we're the first group of people to ever be at risk in America, at least for that. But the reality is it's just not true. It's been the story of people who have followed Jesus since the moment they started following Jesus. There's been an overwhelming pressure for us to shut our mouths. Don't tell that story. And so we have to define what shame is because if we're not supposed to have it, what is it? 
And shame, uh, according to the dictionary, it's a painful emotion. It's caused by a consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. Shame is a painful emotion that's caused when we realize it's our fault. We're aware that we have guilt or that we have a shortcoming, like we're not good enough or an impropriety. Somehow we invaded something in a way that that wasn't proper. We did something improper. And I gotta tell you something, shame shows up in the New Testament about 24 times. And every time it shows up, it looks like this. Don't be ashamed, 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 don't be ashamed. That was eight, three more sets of that. Every time it shows up, it's God telling us, the word of God telling us, this isn't something that's for you. You're not supposed to carry this. You're not designed to be in some kind of a painful state by a consciousness of your guilt or feeling like you have shortcomings or that your life is somehow inappropriate. Time and time and time and time again, the scriptures say, no, no to that, no to that, no to that, no to that. That's not a thing for us. When Paul says, hey, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It's the power of God. When Paul says, hey, you haven't received a, peer, a, a spirit of timidity, of being intimidated and shrinking back. You have a, a spirit of power and of love. In a loving way, you have power and authority and a sound mind or self-discipline. And a pow, you have power to, in a loving way, overcome people attempting to intimidate you away from telling your story. That's why this is such a huge deal. But the reality is, it's really hard to share our faith. I bet if I were to ask in the room, when's the last time you told your story the way I told my story just now? Some of you that had to do it for Rooted would be like, well, it was about six weeks ago and I had to do it and it was like two minutes. It was really uncomfortable. Some of you got through Rooted, somehow managed not to do it and you're feeling like you skated. (laughs) However, I'm just saying... When's the last time that you had an opportunity and actually shared your story about how you met Jesus? Here's how my life was. Here's how I met Jesus. Here's how my life is now. That's simple. Those three steps. When's the last time that you had opportunity to do that? Because it's hard to do it. It's hard to do it. And we just talked about there's like a growing hostility towards people who do that. If I share my faith, though, pastor, people won't like me. I won't be at the cool kids table. I won't have anyone to sit with at lunch. I'll get labeled as those goldfish eating crazy people, tin hat wearing conspiracy theorists, judgmental. I'll get labeled and lumped with, with, with a group that I don't want to be labeled and lumped with. If I share my faith, people won't like me. Paul in a little bit is going to encourage us and he's going to be writing from prison at least today at this moment in history and time, we're at no risk of facing what he faced, potential death and imprisonment for sharing our faith in this country and in this community. Now listen, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or in any way living in fear, but I'm not unwise enough to not think that a day could come where the culture of our nation shifts and the freedom to gather like this and share our faith and tell our stories and get into the word of God is not guaranteed. I'm not so naive to think that 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 is a guaranteed privilege that 
I'll have and generations behind me will have here in this nation. I'm not so naive to think that that's not something that couldn't be taken away from us. What would we do in that circumstance, church? How would we survive or thrive? Would we shrink back, be intimidated? Would we gather like this if we faced imprisonment or worse? I don't know. I listened to one pastor, um, Francis Chan is his name, and he was talking about this tension in the, in the division of some churches that in specific nations where the church came under massive oppression. And he talked about the difference between the church in Russia and the church in China, both places where um, uh, there was a massive oppression towards the church and the church uh, was, was basically become, had become illegal. And in one place in Russia, the way they worshipped, they gathered in cathedrals and in temples and, and, uh, and they gathered in places like this and, and a priest kind of gave them uh, uh, all the information that they needed at that moment. And so when, when the government said that's illegal, they tore down those places that they used to worship and imprisoned those pastors or priests and those leaders and the church was decimated and it ceased to exist in Russia for years and years and years and years and years. In China, something different happened, though. They, they, they didn't gather the same way that we gathered. They actually, that, that Russia gathered, they actually gathered in life communities and small circles and families and homes and with neighbors. And so when the church became persecuted, they arrested the pastors, but there, were, there wasn't a lot of buildings to tear down. And the church actually went more underground than it had been before. And it exploded with new life because the followers of Jesus knew how to tell the story. And just because Pastor Mike wasn't around to preach the word, Jesse was like, I can tell you what it says. I've read it and I've lived it and I have a relationship with it. And here's my story. And they began to tell their own story with one another and the church exploded. So what would happen with us if we ever faced that kind of pressure the reality is we don't face that pressure today, but the pressure we do face is real in a different ways. We face the pressure of being ostracized or left out or outside of our uh, desired community, embarrassment and labels. And in the midst of all that, Paul writes a letter from prison to church folks and he's about to be executed. The world has changed and his freedom to preach has left and Nero and the government has said it's illegal and they've arrested him and he's in a hole in the ground, probably with another prisoner on top of him and a grate above him. And, and uh, he's writing a letter saying, let me just encourage you to never be ashamed of your faith. So in 2 Timothy, we pick up, and if you missed last week, there was a lot of kind of history that you, you may want to catch up with online. But in 2 Timothy, we catch up, and Paul's writing the last letter he's ever going to write that we're aware of to his son in the Lord. And one of the things that he was passionate about was handing off his faith to the next generation. And he wanted to make sure the next generation knew what he had experienced and knew what hope there was in Jesus. And we should never forget how important it is to make sure the next generation hears our story and what God's done in our lives. And we pass that on. And he loved Timothy like a son and he called him a son in the Lord and he said, you need to be equipped to carry the church and to lead in the church. And he knows the church is gonna read this letter and Timothy's been pastoring. Timothy early on went with him and traveled on these missionary journeys and he was someone that Paul would send and say, you go to this church and encourage them and then catch up with me over here and they would do that and they would coordinate and they would reach people and he was like an ambassador of Jesus but an emissary of Paul, it was amazing. And, and now he's been planted as a pastor in one church and one community and he's in a he's in a city called Ephesus 
Now, Ephesus is a big deal. Historically, it comes up time and time again, especially in the scriptures. We know the letter to the Ephesians was written there. We know that uh, Jesus talks about the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. And uh, we talked about that last week. And then we actually know, this is amazing. We know the story of how the church in Ephesus got started. So if you're in your Bible and you're already in, uh, in uh, uh, 2 Timothy chapter one, you could put a finger there. But if you wanna flip back a little bit, in Acts chapter 19, we get the story of how the church in Ephesus got started. And it's this incredible, incredible story. Acts chapter 19, I'll paraphrase most of it because of time, but in Acts chapter 19, Paul is going from town to town, city to city, he's sharing the gospel, and he's running into people who have gotten saved because it's spreading faster than he can travel, and he's meeting these little pockets of Christians that have gathered. They've been, maybe they were traveling in Jerusalem or, or something like that. They met other believers, they've come to faith in Jesus, and now they've gone back home. And Ephesus is this big cosmopolitan city. Uh, it had a big port. Um, it was a, a place of trade and, and commerce. Um, it would have been, you know, maybe maybe 60,000 people, which would have been a huge city at that time, um, maybe the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Um, it had a temple of Artemis or Diana, which was one of the seventh wonders of the world um, that was there. And there was massive temple worship and idol worship that was there. There was this just cosmopolitan group, the way that you would have in Seattle, there was every kind of ethnicity and tongue and, uh, and trade was a, a big thing there. And there was different socioeconomic and belief systems. It was all this big hodgepodge of a city. And Paul goes there and in Acts 19, you see the story and the story is just incredible. He shows up and he finds a couple of believers there who have uh, a faith in Jesus. And he says, well, how's that working out for you? And, and he starts a conversation with them. And he asks them about the Holy Spirit. And they're like, we, we got baptized by John the Baptist, which is a cool story by this by its own. He goes, but we don't know what you're talking about with the Holy Spirit. And he goes, well, let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. And he prays for them and he baptizes them in the name of Jesus. And they receive the Holy Spirit and they get power. And as they get this power to accomplish the mission that God wants them to do, they get boldness and they start telling their story and there's miracles that are happening. And so they go to the local synagogue and, and they start for about two or three months. They're just doing ministry there and they're telling people about Jesus. And church people sometimes get put off when people are really fired up. And so they get put off. They're like, this is too much. You guys are too crazy. You're telling your story and all these people are coming to faith in Jesus. We want you out of here. So they left the church and they just went to like the, the center of town and they keep telling their story. And literally people are getting saved over and over again. And they're running into people and they're not ashamed. And they just keep saying, I was like this, but then Jesus showed up and now I'm like this. And I have the power of the Holy Spirit. I've overcome the, the life I used to have is not who I am. I'm a new creation. And people are hearing this story and they're getting excited about it. And it's it's transforming lives. And, it, and, and I think around verse 10, it says something like, like all of the area of Asia be, began to believe. Now, Asia is confusing to us because we think China when it's Asia, but it's actually, uh, uh, Asia is like a Southern Turkey, okay? It's like uh, Asia Minor in their, in their language at that time, uh, if you looked at a map from that time. And so it's like the Southern part of Turkey. But he says, everyone in Asia began to believe. And, and then there's this crazy story about the seven sons of Siva, and we'll have to tell that story another time. But essentially, they saw the power that was on display, and they tried to mimic it without the relationship with God, and they get their rear ends kicked, and it doesn't work really well. And it causes this stir where people began to realize you can't fake this. 
It requires a relationship with God and it creates a holy fear in people that they should actually check out this God thing. And around verse 17, I'll pick up because this is incredible, you should hear this. Verse 17, Acts chapter 19, it says, when this became known, and the seven sons of Siva whole scenario, became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Listen to this, verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. That means people were coming to this cultural hub in the center of town and they heard about Jesus and they walked up to these men and women who were followers of Jesus and just said, listen, I gotta tell you the truth. I've been lying, cheating, stealing, coveting. I've been uh, killing. I've been uh, uh, living sexually impure life. I've been doing all of these things and I need to stop doing that. And they began just confessing confessing their sin. This is like public repentance in the middle of town. This is crazy for this to be happening. Look what happens next. It says they, they come and they began confessing their evil deeds. And it says a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And that's a ton of drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread wildly and grew in power. And if you read on, what ends up happening is people started uh, avoiding this entire industry that was there that was all designed around pleasuring their flesh and, and sin and rejecting God and running away from God. And there was sorcery and idol worship and, and all of the things that come with that self-pleasure and, and pursuing. All, and people started leaving that industry behind. And if you read on, it's actually hilarious. The silversmiths and the artisans and the people who are making their life and living off of feeding in to this industry of sin are now broke and they actually riot. And they, it's like, it's like the, the, the beauty and the beast, they're pitchforks and riots and, and they're chasing down and Gaston's leading the way and, and they're trying to get these disciples out of there. They want them out of there because what happened was a few, a small group of people believed that they had power because of what the Holy Spirit had done in their life and who Jesus is. And they started telling people the truth of that and they weren't ashamed. And an entire city got saved. And the city got saved so hard that the businesses in the city that were dependent on people being sinful, rejecting God, pleasuring themselves, they started going under. Can you imagine in our community what it would look like if those kind of businesses, you know what I'm talking about. They're dependent on people pleasing their flesh and rejecting God. And they're dependent on selling sin. If they started just going under and they, like if there was just bonfires, all of the elements of their business were just, they were like, we're just get rid of this. And these places of business, now they were just husks and empty places in town and people looked and go, oh, that's what, they used to sell sin there and it doesn't even exist. That's what happens in Ephesus, it's amazing. They get mad and they try to get the disciples out of there and the end of that little wave of the story is the city council kind of gets together and they're like, they haven't broken any rules or laws, they're just telling people about Jesus and so you can't kill them for that. Almost 10 years later, about nine years later, Paul's gonna write this 
letter from a hole in the ground and the climate and the culture has changed. And verse 15, when we get there in a minute, is gonna say this, but I want you to see the, 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 how far it's changed. Verse 15 is gonna say, you know that everyone in the province of Asia, that's this area, has deserted me. Including Phyllis and her mugnes. <laughs> And he says, something's changed in the climate. There is no longer this acceptance that it's okay to say and believe this. Uh, Nero is now the emperor, and he's killing Christians. And these people who were following and strengthening us and part of our team, they were living for God. They've now deserted us. They've become ashamed. And they've run, and he calls out these two guys, and that's a horrible way to get into the scripture. Not only that, but your name is Whack. So culture shifts and it changes. And last week we ended this conversation talking about there's just no cowards in heaven. And it picks up in verse 8 of 2 Timothy. And because there's no cowards and we have a spirit of uh, uh, power and of love and sound mind, he says in verse 8, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And that verse is enough to carry us the rest of the way because there's so much power there. And Paul says, listen, don't be ashamed to tell people your story. Don't be embarrassed. I understand that the climate has changed and the culture has, shamed, has changed and they're trying to shame you for believing what you believe and standing for what you stand. But I want you to hear something. I'm in a hole in the ground and I'm writing to encourage you. Don't ever back down. And just because you see my situation, don't be ashamed of me either because what I'm going through is okay. Now, what's hard for me to process in this is gets uncomfortable because he says, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And I gotta be honest with you, I'm not super thrilled about that, but I'm even less thrilled when I encounter followers of Jesus and people who have been living in some way a life that uh, is pursuing Jesus when they're shocked at suffering, when they're shocked when suffering happens in their life. And I'm wondering who lied to them that convinced them that somehow following Jesus was gonna take them to a place where they were never gonna experience any hard times. They were never gonna experience any suffering. As a matter of fact, James, the brother of Jesus, who eventually dies by being thrown off the roof of his church, basically, according to history, he wrote in James chapter one that we should consider it all joy whenever we face trials of many kinds. Many kinds. And then I have conversations with people and they say, well, God, why would he let me have to deal with this physical issue that I'm dealing with? And I'm thinking, well, that's a kind, many kinds. Well, this financial issue is destroyed. Well, that's a kind of thing, right? This relational blow up and yeah, that's a kind of thing. And who lied to you and told you that as you journey through this earth that you weren't gonna experience any hard times? Which person in scripture is the story that you're holding on to that's convinced you that things are never gonna be difficult? I keep looking for that person, that guy or that gal, because I wanna preach them. They just don't exist. That didn't struggle and didn't have a hard time because we live in this broken, fallen, sinful world that is operating against the Lord and we struggle sometimes. And Paul says, don't be ashamed 
to keep talking about Jesus even though you see me in hard times. And don't be ashamed when you get into hard times. It's the power for the gospel because that's the power of God. Paul is the same guy who was standing there and he watched Stephen share his faith and get murdered. The disciples, they, they started sharing their faith. They immediately got imprisoned. There was no sense that, that this was going to be something that didn't have any difficulty to it, following Jesus. And some of you are like, wow, no one told me that. What I sign up for? I'm just telling you the truth. Stephen shares his faith. He gets killed. Jesus says in Matthew 10, uh, around verse 22, he says, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And when you're persecuted, flee to another town. He says, you're going to have to tuck tail and run sometimes. That's in the red letters. That's the words of Jesus. He's like, people are going to hate you because of me. That's how it's going to look at the end time. That's how it's going to look. So Paul says, don't be ashamed to tell my story just because it looks like things are not going well for me. Don't ever be ashamed of the power of the gospel. That's how people get saved. Verse 9, Paul says, who has saved us? It's so good. And called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. He says, remember, God saved us. God called us. I heard one, uh, one pastor say it this way, and I loved it. It's just this reality. Paul never got over his conversion. He never got over it. It never became old hat to him that God had chosen him and called him and forgiven him. It never became old hat to him. It, it, it never became old news that he was a follower of Jesus. His story was awesome. He loved telling his story. He's on the road. And I love Paul's story because he wasn't looking for Jesus, right? He wasn't going to church like, let me check this out. And, and I'll size it up and see what's going on, right? He was traveling from town to town, rounding up Christians and imprisoning them so they could be killed. There wasn't like a book he was reading and he got convinced, oh, this is a good argument, right? Paul didn't sit down and make some, uh, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, five times five, 20, they had Jesus. Like he didn't come to some mathematical conclusion. He met Jesus and he never got over his story. Sometimes I worry that we get a little over our story. Our story kind of becomes old hat to us. Okay, so you were down by a little goldfish pond and you challenged God and okay, we get it. That's your story or whatever. And, and we diminish and shrink up and small up our story. And Paul's like, don't ever small up your story. Your story is incredible. That Jesus that God, the Father, the creator of heaven and earth would have breathed life into the dirt that became your flesh and designed you and knew you from the beginning of time and then came for you because he's awesome and because he doesn't create junk, recognized how valuable you are and sent his only son to pay the price for you so that you could be forgiven, so you could be made into right standing and declared not guilty so that your imperfectness could get into the presence of his perfectness. And he did that for you and it's awesome. Paul never got over that story. He's like, don't get over that story. That's a good story. Don't ever get over your story. 
Verse 10. I gotta keep going, I'm running out of time. But it has now been revealed. This is so awesome. It has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, listen to this language, who has destroyed death. That's awesome. If you're an underliner, you should totally underline that. If you got a church Bible out, you can underline it in the church Bible. It's cool. If I ever get to preach this part again, I want that to be underlined in there. He says, our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. Verse 10, he says, death is defeated. I think it was Ravi Zacharias who said, you know, can you imagine what it would take to dissuade Lazarus from following Jesus? Someone who had spent time in the grave and got called out of the grave. What are you gonna do to get him to stop following Jesus? What are you gonna threaten him with? What kind of fear could you put into him? If you really believe that Jesus has conquered the grave and that death is not the end, what do we really have to be afraid of? That's our story, that's Easter, that's the, all of our, our, our theology about who God is kind of hangs on this fact that he's conquered the grave, that death has been defeated. This is what was so ridiculous and annoying about Paul. You couldn't stop him because he believed that death would have been defeated. So they would tell him, hey, we're gonna kill you. And his response would be, sweet, I get to be with God. I'm longing for the day when I'm dead so I can be in heaven with God. It's the best thing that could ever happen to me. And they're like, fine, we're gonna throw you in jail. And he's like, sweet, I'm gonna get all the guards saved and they're gonna go to heaven and it's gonna be awesome. And all the people of your household who come and visit me and see me, they're gonna get saved. And they're like, just get out of here. And he's like, fine, I'm gonna keep preaching. I'm gonna go town to town. And everywhere I go, I'm just gonna tell people about the incredible love of Jesus. You can't squish that. And when a follower of Jesus gets a hold of this truth that death has been defeated, everything changes. Everything changes. And that's why Paul says we can't be ashamed. That's the core of our story. If death has been defeated, then what do we really have to fear? Oh, we didn't get invited? There was a neighborhood barbecue, and they're like, oh, don't invite that person. He always tells his story. Every time we invite Brandon, he starts talking about what God did in his life. Ugh. So you didn't get invited to the barbecue? Death has been defeated. What do we have to fear? Why won't we tell our story? Jesus tells us time and time again not to be ashamed. I'm gonna skip ahead again, guys, in the back and just go to verse 13 because I want us to finish the thought before I run out of time. Verse 13, he says, so what you heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted in you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He says, listen, Everyone in the city was following Jesus. Then things got hard and they were like, whoo, we're out. They started abandoning one by one. So we have to be the people who guard that truth that was invested and given to us. That reality of who God is and what he's done for him. Because the culture is going to change. 
It's been eight or nine years between when he was there and everyone was getting saved and now he's in prison and the moods all change. There's a new leader. And this new leader is like, that's not gonna be okay. And people are like, okay, we're falling in line. And Nero, the emperor, is, he's, he's torturing and killing and feeding people to the lions and we can't have that. Paul says, you're gonna have to be the guys that guard the truth. You gotta know what you believe. You can't be ashamed of your story. You gotta trust that death has been defeated and you gotta hold on to that truth and the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you will help you to do it. The world's coming for you, trying to convince you that you're gonna have to give that up, trying to tell you it's not okay to believe that anymore and it's just looking for compliance and conformity and we are not to conform to the patterns of this world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and then we can test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Romans 12, 2. Verse 15, <laughs> we read this before and I can't say their names now like I couldn't say it before, but you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Philagalus and Hermione. <laughs> and Paul's like, remember, <laughs> that culture changed. You're a truth guardian. Don't get lumped in with that group. Why are you less worried about getting lumped in with the group that walked away than you are with getting lumped in with the group that now paying the price for what they believe? He's like, don't be ashamed of me. Be ashamed of that. He closes the thought here in verse 16 through 18. He says, may the Lord show mercy on the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chains. And he changes the thought here a little bit. And he says, I want God to show mercy on that faithful follower of Jesus who had a heart to serve, who wasn't ashamed of what I was going through and made a decision not to just refresh me once, but to use his strength to often refresh me. And there's a power here that he's tapping into about how the body of Christ is supposed to work when someone's struggling, when someone's having a hard time. And sometimes we get caught thinking, well, I'm, that's really too bad that that's happening, but we disassociate instead of engaging. And God's like, the reason you've been refreshed isn't to hold on to it, it's to be a source of refreshment to somebody else. Look at the way Onesiphorus is doing it. He's doing it right. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. And may the Lord grant that he'll find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. That don't be ashamed thing, it comes with the need for us to stick together, to do life in community and to know each other and to pick up each other when we're weak and to stop taking shots at believers who are struggling. Come on, church, we see this so much. There's nothing worse than when a faith leader is struggling and the rest of the church community shows up with their pitchforks and rifles and shoot the wounded and say, oh, we don't there, there has to be, there's always something wrong with that guy. I never quite trusted that. We're the only group, come on, we're the only army in the history of the world that shoots the wounded. When someone's struggling, when someone's weak, when something's going on, we just go, oh, it must be, it must be because of something in their life. And maybe it is, but that's not our role to come in and destroy them. But we're like, oh, we're ashamed to be connected with anybody who's going through a hard time. We're supposed to be the compassion of Jesus and the hands and the heart of Jesus and calling people to the redemption and the life that's in Jesus. That's our role, not the hammer. We're supposed to be loving towards the people that the world marks, mocks. We're supposed to be those guys. 
before I run out of time, I just want to break down for you some of the lies that we see shame trying to do as Paul is battling these lies about shame in this text. And I want to give you a couple of these tools before we run out because these are lies. And when you see that you're experiencing this, I want you to recognize these are a a, a lie that shame does because shame tries to convince us of things that simply aren't true. And the first one is this. If you're experiencing suffering, it's because something's wrong with you. And that's a lie. It's a lie. Everyone, Paul's experiencing suffering. It's not because something's wrong with him. It's because he's standing up for what he believes and the, the weight of the world is pressing in and trying to get him to move off this position, but he's fanned into flame the spirit that's within him. And he's standing up for what he believes no matter what the consequences. And sometimes I think we think that if there's suffering in our lives, it must be because something's wrong with us and that's shame lying to us. It's shame lying to us. Another lie that shame tells us is that it's too embarrassing to stand up for what we believe. It's gonna be too embarrassing. Don't tell your story at work or to that friend or you're sitting there having a conversation and they're telling you their life and you're thinking, oh, this would be a great time to tell them about Jesus, but that could be embarrassing or we might lose the relationship. And, and some of you are like, well, are you telling me, pastor, that I should be standing on the street corner with a mega horn going, turn or burn? I'm not telling you that at all. I'm telling you to not be ashamed of your story and not to be ashamed to know people and be in their life and love them and tell them the story of what God has done in your life and the power of the gospel to change hearts and lives and make all things new. It's not too embarrassing to stand up for what I believe. It's too embarrassing to be ashamed of what I believe and not have the courage to stand up for it. And the last one I want you to catch this is sometimes shame lies and says we shouldn't be associated with people who are going through a tough season. And we look at someone's life and we go, oh, they're going through a hard time and, and I can't be connected to them because some of that might splash onto me and I'll, be, I'll look like I'm endorsing whatever's going on in their life or somehow I'm, I'm, I'm pro whatever bad decisions led them to this place or even if no bad decisions led them to this place that somehow that splash zone might get on me and so someone's going through a hard time and instead of being the hands and feet of Jesus and going and ministering and caring and loving and demonstrating the heart of Jesus, we pull back. Because we're like, oh, we can't get that on us. And shame lies to us and tells us that's wisdom. And it's not. It's not the heart of Jesus at all. Before I run out of time, I got to talk for a minute about shame because most of this text, this whole passage has been about not being ashamed of our story and not being ashamed of God. But I want you to hear 24 times that in the New Testament, it talks about shame. And it always says, don't be ashamed. It never says, and then God was ashamed of them. It never says that God put shame into them because the reality is I need you to hear this. Although we've been talking about our faith in God, the reality is God doesn't ever move through shame and God doesn't use shame to correct us. It's not his tool. It's not in his bag. We've been talking about tools and being equipped and in God's tool bag, he doesn't utilize shame. He doesn't. That sense of there's something deeply wrong fundamentally you've messed up, that you've been improper. He doesn't use that. It's not in his tool bag. And so when you're dealing with and struggling with shame, you've got to recognize what enemy you're fighting. That is a tool, but it's not one of his tools. 
And the enemy masquerades like an angel of light and we spiritualize it and say, oh, I'm, I can't get past this because I'm carrying the consequences of my thing. And we don't realize that it's an actual spiritual battle and the enemy is using shame to try to paralyze you from moving into the life that God's called you to live in because God doesn't use shame. It's not in his tool book. I've read the book. It's not in there. If I had more time, I'd unpack this scripture more, but I wanna just throw you one scripture to kind of prove my point and, and uh, you feel free to challenge me and read the whole text and get angry. I don't care. You can do what you wanna do because I'm not ashamed of my story. But in 1 Corinthians, uh, what is it, 7? Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, sorry. Paul's writing about dealing with struggling with stuff and he says this amazing line and there's so much meat around this, but I wanna just give you this one Nugget, he says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And he says, there's a difference because God does, come on, draw us through sorrow to change behavior. He uses conviction. And sometimes that thing that's in us, the Holy Spirit, when we know we've made a decision we shouldn't make and we're walking in it and, and suddenly we're like, oh, this doesn't feel good and I don't like this. That is the Holy Spirit stirring in us as godly sorrow saying, I made a decision that I shouldn't make. But you know what, you know how to stick a thermometer in that and see if that's from the Lord or from the enemy. It, what does it lead you towards? What does it direct you towards? Because the word of God says that godly sorrow brings repentance. Repentance literally means a changed direction and a changed mind. It means I was going this way and suddenly it went, oh, I'm, I've been pursuing this thing that isn't what God had for me. And I feel this godly sorrow. And now I turn and I go this way and I change the way I think and I change the way I, I believe about whatever that thing is. And I say, that thing was, a, was attractive, but it wasn't what was best for me. And I want what God has for me. So I start moving in this direction and it leads to salvation and it leaves no regret. Yeah, I went this path for a little while, but thank God, now it's part of my story. I'm not ashamed that I struggled because in my struggle and in my weakness, God's strength came through and changed and transformed me. And I don't have to be who I always have been. I'm a new creation and I'm over here now. And it brings life. Worldly sorrow, come on. Worldly sorrow goes, you made this decision and now that's all, that, that's a wrap for you. You're stuck. This happened to you and now that's the end. It will define you and everywhere you go, you'll wear the scarlet letter of your thing that whatever your problem is, whatever you're, like you're stuck and that's your identity now and that's who you are and it brings death and it brings real death. Death to your identity, death to your calling, death to hope, death to the mission God has for you and ultimately death to your soul. So here's the thing. You gotta have the courage to put the thermometer in when you're feeling that pain and go, okay, wait a second here. Come on, Brianna, are we going, is it paralyzing you? Is it stopping you from moving towards Jesus? Then that's not from Jesus. Is it calling you out of something and into life? Then that's how God works. He doesn't use shame. Shame paralyzes you. Shame says you are this thing. You can't get out of it. You're improper and you have no hope. Godly sorrow says, hey, that's not what's best for you. Come see where freedom lives and life is for you. And I can't have a whole conversation about being shameless and not attack that reality and not speak that. You need to hear someone from a microphone tell you that shame is never a tool from God, ever. I could drop the mic and we could just leave right there, but I got to pray for you, so I won't. 
That's why the scripture says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There just isn't. Hashtag no shame. So I got to finish up here. And what's cool is we're just walking through this letter. So I got all this stuff. I'll just roll it into next week and I'm halfway done. And we're just going to walk through the text and we're just going to hear from Jesus and from Paul writing to his protege and to the church. And it's going to challenge us and help us to grow and be more like Jesus. But I got to just talk to you because I think as I've been talking, there's a, a couple different groups in the room. And I just want you to hear this. And there's a group that has been struggling with this idea of just even just being associated with Jesus. It's like, I'm not, I just don't like, you know, I can hang out at church because in this room I'm okay. Or I got drug into this room and I'm putting up with it. But the idea of being associated with hashtag team Jesus, right? Is a, it's a scary thought. And there's some fear in there. And, and, and it's the same timidity we talked about last week. If you didn't catch last week, go back and listen to it. We, the, the spirit of intimidation. It's intimidating to think about what I may have to leave to stay on that team. And Paul's saying, man, you can't be ashamed. Not of this, your story and what God's doing for you. That's not your story. Shrinking back in fear is not your story. There's some of you in the room, that last little anecdote about shame was everything you were supposed to hear this morning. And you're gonna be putting the thermometer in right as I speak and going, oh no, I have been carrying some shame and I have been allowing some shame to live in my life and hold root in my life. And I've been carrying it almost like a badge of honor, like see how bad I feel about what I did or what happened to me. And, and, and the Lord's just like, that is not how I work. Don't give the enemy a foothold in your life. Let that go. Repent, turn. That's where life and salvation and no regrets happen. Some of you have been dealing with shame and it's time to recognize there's just no condemnation in Christ. And maybe for some of you, you can stand. I'm gonna pray and let you get out of here. I know that if I let you stand, then you know I'm almost done and you can hang with me for the last moment. Maybe for some of you, you've heard the story and you're like, I'm not ashamed and I'm living it. And I'm trying to figure it out. What do I do now? And that little nugget at the end where Paul talked about Onesiphorus. And he said, that guy managed to refresh me. And he sought me out and it was work and it was difficult, but he refreshed me. And maybe the way that you can move from a place of I'm a little bit stuck and you can battle and be shameless is you can just recognize you have been blessed and you're in a season of blessing and provision and that's nothing to be ashamed of either. But you didn't get that just so you can be like, thanks God, this is awesome. You got that so you can be a source of refreshing. And there's gonna be people that God puts in your life and, and, and maybe it's the body of Christ as a whole. I'm not sure how that's supposed to look, but, but the word of God would just say, hey, you know what? You're in this cool season. Now just be refreshing. Go refresh somebody. Go, you see their load? Go take some of their load. Go find a way to just be a blessing. And the challenge is, okay, how do I have my eyes recalibrated for that? I've been in a, a whole season of just making sure I got everything I needed and I missed that in the midst of that, I, was, I wasn't ashamed of someone else struggling. I just wasn't even aware that I could be an access point to just be a blessing and bring my strength and somehow bless someone else. And so 
I'm going to pray, and I don't know where you're at. I don't know if it's wild to even think about having the courage to associate with Jesus. If the fear of, of even thinking about telling your story paralyzes you, I'm going to pray courage and strength and passion and, and power for that. If you've been carrying shame, whoo, stop it. That's my daddy voice, by the way. Stop it. Just stop it. I don't need to know the rest of the situation, right? You hear him fighting in the other room, just stop it. <laughs> I don't need to know how you've talked yourself into this scenario that you're carrying something that you shouldn't be carrying. And I know God knows, your heavenly father knows. So your pastor just says, stop it. Knock it off. And some of you are just gonna begin to get stirred in your heart of passion to somehow be, you know you've been blessed, but it's to be a blessing. And God's gonna start opening doors. So Lord, in this moment, <laughs> I recognize my own weakness. I recognize my own dependency and need for you. And I celebrate the strength that comes when I'm dependent on you. And we just recognize our own weakness. We recognize the places that we've been afraid to engage with our story, whether it was intentional or even just maybe unintentional. It just didn't even occur to us to do it. I pray that you would stir up in us courage I pray for the day when we meet people here in this body whose story is somebody who's sitting in the room right now had the courage to tell them about what Jesus had done in their life and they weren't angry at them. They were actually incredibly relieved to hear the story of life and hope that they were looking for. And someday we're going to be baptizing people and they're going to be sharing their testimony. They're going to be talking about somebody who's in the room right now, who they work with, who's a neighbor, who they, who they ride share with, who they watch their kids or, or whatever it is, a relationship they buy their groceries from, they, their Starbucks barista, whatever. That day, God, I'm looking forward. I'm believing. I'm prophetically believing for those stories because that's how you do it. You changed the whole city when, when people believed and whew, fanned into flame the Holy Spirit and their courage and strength to accomplish that. And your power showed up and did all this work. And God, I pray for those that just needed to hear the word, stop it. And I pray in your perfect father's way, you would say, stop it. <laughs> That's not your will for them. You would breathe life and hope I pray in the name of Jesus, we repent from, from letting the enemy have a foothold in our life and we repent for holding on to things that we shouldn't hold on to. And, and God, we repent from whatever it is that brought us to this place and we move and change our direction and actually move towards life that leads to, to salvation and leaves no regret. And I pray for those in the room that are in a season or even about to come into a season. They didn't even know this was gonna be for them, but you're gonna remind them of this. They're about to hit a season where provision and blessing and all of that stuff comes into play. And suddenly they're gonna think, wow, this is amazing. And then you're gonna remind them. This is so that they can be a point of refreshing. And you're gonna put things in their heart and, and you're gonna put people in their path. And there's gonna be lives that get changed because the people of God just start living like they're not ashamed of what God's done in their lives, and they just start giving it away. I'm excited about that. We love you, we thank you, and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.